Hello and welcome back to Herpetological Highlights. This is episode 11. Uh, I'm Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. And this week we're all about vipers. Uh, what do we have in store for people, Tom? Uh, so we've got three papers this week about vipers and then our classic species by week. Um, the three papers, first of all, one focusing on pit vipers and their ability to look at thermal targets and finding out whether or not non-pit vipers also share this ability. And then we've got one on Deboya vipers from North Africa and how their sort of suitable habitat changed over the course of the last 150 odd thousand years. And then finally, we've got a paper about viper conservation and where it's going in the future and how they're doing on the whole as a group of organisms. Excellent. Cool. Are you yawning? Yeah, I might have been yawning. (laughs) (laughs) Two minutes in. Uh, I'm going to stop you there. You're you're boring me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this episode. You know, we both like vipers. Um, they're just some of the coolest snakes ever. Some of the like most... I, I never really know the right phraseology to use when you're talking about degrees of evolution and how recent they are. But in my opinion, they are some of the most evolutionarily advanced of the snakes that we have. Possibly the most. Probably the most. Uh, yes, that... well, they, they evolved the latest, didn't they? And they have some of the most complex aspects to their, their physiology. Right? Yes. Yeah, that, that, they that's do. that's fair to say without saying one's more advanced or one more one's more highly evolved because that's not really a that's not but, really something you can say, is it? But we do agree that they are in our hearts. <laughs> in our <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're just really cool. It's going to be fun to talk about vipers. I really enjoyed reading on the on this one. Actually, I like spiky mm. lizards. They were cool, but um, yeah, vipers. I mean, they're just they're just badass, aren't they? Exactly. Do we want to get straight into the first one and dive right in there? Yes, let's do it. All right. So the first one is by Safer and Grace in 2004. Infrared imaging in vipers, differential response to crotaline and viperine snakes to paired thermal targets. And this was published in Behavioral Brain Research. Yeah, it's not a journal I've ever read anything from before. No, I hadn't even heard of it. Yeah, it's not an easy easy paper to get hold of, actually, either. Um, but it's really cool, and I'm glad we did. Uh, so, yeah, it kind of hinges around this ability of pit vipers and other snakes to detect infrared radiation through mm. pit, pits in the face called laurel pits. It's pretty incredible, really. It's, it's like an additional sense that these snakes have... Um, Yes, it's more than just being able to tell if one area is hotter or colder, isn't it? They can actually map it to some sort of uh, three-dimensional space, can't they? They have to, It is quite... Um, yeah. There's quite a good fidelity there. It's very high-tech. So they have kind of a small hollow opening in between the nostril and the eye on each side of a snake's face, which is the L'Oreal pit. This is pit vipers I'm talking about. It's slightly different in um, boas and pythons. Within that opening is like a thin membrane... Um, full of mitochondria which obviously provide an abundance of energy and it also has really really high blood flow the inside of that membrane is riddled with nerve fibers and these are the nerve fibers which we associate with feeling sensations for example warmth 
and uh, they make up part of what's called the somatosensory system, I learned. And uh, this pit membrane itself actually converts heat energy into a form that these embedded nerves can transmit. Um, so basically, the pit vipers have extraordinarily heat-sensitive holes in their faces, which is incredible with high-tech on its own. But then you find out that the information from these pits connects with information from the eyes, and they're processed in the same region of the brain, which is called the optic te tectum. Uh, so basically, these snakes with infrared imaging pits actually see both with the eyes in the usual way, and they also have this overlaid infrared portion. Mm. So they're essentially the predator from, <laughs> <laughs> from, from the 1987 film, classic. The predator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, yeah, they're all they're ready. They're equipped to take on Arnie. It's it's pretty ridiculous that they have this this functionality, and um, as far as I can tell, it hasn't evolved anywhere else in the animal kingdom. It's just these snakes. So if you want to hide from a pit viper, you cover yourself in mud. That's that's what you said, mate. <laughs> mate. That's exactly it. And interestingly, I was I actually went on IMDb and uh, looked at the uh, Predator film. Apparently, Arnie nearly got hypothermia filming that scene because <laughs> <laughs> of all the cold, cold mud. Yeah, they had to like keep dousing him in cold mud. <laughs> Apparently, he was, hate he was hating it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they're 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 pretty unbelievable animals. Um, and the the focus of this paper was to find out whether. The vipers from Viperinae, which are considered true vipers, also had the heat-sensitive pits like the ones in Crotalinae do, which is all your pit vipers. Yes, all had some mechanism for uh, recognising and using heat as a um, as a cue in in predation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because um, it's it prior to this paper. I mean, it isn't it isn't a new paper. This was published in two thousand and four, but it was it was well known that. Um, you know, pit vipers, so that's a whole swathe of different uh, creatures from the Americas and Asia. Um, they all have these heat-sensitive pits. And then there was a suggestion by um, an author called Breidenbach in 1990 that Russell's vipers and puff adders, which are both members of Viperinae rather than Crotalinae, could also sense heat. Um, and that kind of led to this investigation, which is a lot more thorough. The study by uh, Breidenbach actually had very small sample size with only six snakes, three pit vipers and three non. And um, Breidenbach herself even called it a preliminary study. Um, mm. And there was other flaws. There was other flaws with it where the tests were actually undertaken in the cages where the animals were living and they didn't have consistent backgrounds and various other things. Yes. But the point was that it, that it did stimulate uh interest yes so we get it, a, a more further you know this 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 study that we're talking about today to really get to the uh the nub of the issue so that it did its job didn't it it did yeah it, it stimulated the discussion and um yeah fair play Breidenbach was open and just like yeah i gave it a go with the limited resources that i had and it suggested this so someone needs to do mm. a further study on it and here they have they have done it um so in this study they had Five crotaline snakes, so that's the true puff, uh, true uh, pit vipers, which were three. The, tr the true pit vipers. <laughs> As what do you mean? Pit vi well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You you just saved yourself from saying true vipers by saying true pit vipers. Right? <laughs> <That's not> the... <laughs> the pit vipers, the crotaline snakes from the family, the subfamily crotalinae, were yeah. three copperheads, 
which is Agkistron Contortrix, two Western Diamondback Rattlesnakes, Crotalus Aatrox, and then they compared that to six non-Crotaline Vipers, that is the true Vipers from Vipirinae, and those were three Puff Adders, Bittus Ariatans, two Gaboon Vipers, which are Bittus Gabonica, and one Rhinoceros Viper, which is Bittus Nursicornis. Mm. So, testing this, rather simply, the core of the idea was to present these snakes with various uh, balloons in different te- that had different temperature uh, liquid in them. So you had a, had a warm target and a cool target. All consistent, because of all balloons, all white balloons, so you've got no other uh, stimulus uh, influencing their choice of warm or cold. And they presented the snakes with both a warm balloon and a cool balloon at the same time, and measured things like tongue flicking, head orientation, and other uh, behavioural uh, reactions that would, that would basically say or, or imply snake interest and then also recorded which balloon they struck at yeah so the hope was that the um well the snakes who could sense heat would be more interested in the ones that were warm yes but what happened <laughs> well that did happen i think actually didn't it <laughs> oh absolutely fully they, they did two sort of sets of experiments the first set was a very straightforward cool balloon versus warm balloon yes and in that one the, the pit vipers were overwhelmingly interested in the warm balloon. Yeah. And actually, only the pit vipers were found to even strike. So yeah. all the other guys, the true vipers, weren't particularly interested and certainly weren't interested enough to strike at anything. And there was no real significant difference between them looking at the cold balloon or warm balloon. There was just... They just had two balloons shoved in their face. Yeah, and they didn't mind. <laughs> the... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, the um, the pit vipers they they did, didn't they? They struck ten of thir- ten of thirty one trials ended in a strike. So I mean that's pretty unambiguous, isn't it? Ten against none. The, p- yeah. the, pit, the pit vipers were all about the hot balloons. They could obviously sense that there was something going on there, and they thought it was prey, or they thought it was something they should defend themselves against. And to strike at something, that's quite a considerable, uh, you know, bit of behaviour there, because a balloon does not look like something that a pit viper would usually eat. No, no. They so are, generally it, it, speaking, pretty conservative animals. So for them to be as gung-ho as that, they, they, they were pretty sure that there was something there worth uh, having a go at. Mm. Although I have seen them in the wild stri- strike at shadows before. Yes, as have I. Yeah. But, you know, I guess that's a similar thing in, in that they're really conservative until they see something which to them is indicative of either a prey or a predator. Because a shadow is unambiguously something moving nearby. If it's, it? Yeah, if it's moving, then it's that that's a whole other whole other ball game isn't it yeah yeah no i'd forgotten yeah. about that yeah yeah the old uh the old green pit vipers love a good shadow don't they um, yeah well, yeah <laughs> or they hate them they, to bite <laughs> they, them. they despise them so uh yeah so that was the first experiment just a straight hot v cold and in the second one the cool balloon was scented with mouse bedding um so instead of scenting the warm balloon which would kind of just be extra confusing and really impossible to disentangle uh, because if a warm balloon was scented with... If they were both scented, the warm balloon would give off more scent because it's warm, the scent particles would be more volatile. So what they basically did was a comparison of warm versus mouse odour to see which one is more likely to initiate any kind of a behaviour in the snakes. Mm. And again, the uh, the pit vipers, the, the crotaline snakes, were 
much more interested in the warm balloon, while the viperine snakes, the true vipers, were equally interested in both balloons and they weren't really particularly interested in either, really. Yeah, so this this is a more interesting experiment in some ways because you've got um, snakes that aren't particularly bothered by the scent of a mouse in, in that sort of... I mean, the balloons, how, how far apart were they? They weren't massively far apart. I think it was 20, 20 centimetres or something. Yeah, and they were placed, like, what, 10 centimetres from the snake? Yeah, so in terms of chemical cues, there's not a high enough either strength or, or concentration to warrant uh, interest in the non-pit vipers to the cold balloon. Right? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I'm seeing from there. Yeah. And or it suggests that visual cues are a big deal for the uh, true pit vipers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It might just be that the yeah, the true vipers do rely heavily on movement and things like that to, to get their prey and a big balloon dropping down in an unfamiliar space because they were moved out of their home environments. These are ambush predators, so they yes. weren't they weren't sitting in their usual ambush positions. They were dumped in a in a sort of empty vacuous space and had a white a pair of white balloons presented to them they probably just it probably just didn't register as a hunting scenario despite the smell of a mouse Mm. whereas the pit vipers see something warm the overriding instinct is just get it get it get it (laughs) yeah yeah it was 15 to 20 centimeters away from the snake oh and the 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 balloons were only 6.5 centimeters apart so you know, it's not like a, they don't have to put a massive amount of effort to put transfer attention from one balloon to the other. That's what yeah. I just put because I said 20 centimeters and that seemed quite considerable. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. Cause um, they are quite small snakes. Yeah. So 6.5 centimeters apart, balloon to balloon. Well, actually, I say they're small snakes, but some of those species are massive. Puff adders, big, big boys, aren't they? Yeah, but still, you know, in yeah. terms of an experiment, you don't want yeah. to have to ha- force a yeah, lot of. Uh, you know, having two things coming from two different angles to a snake, because, well, that's, yeah, number one, very stressful. Number two, you've got to make sure he's, n- you know, noticed both of them at the same time. Yeah, you don't want this little snakey strain himself either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless him. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I said they're not, they're not small snakes. Yeah, one of them, two of them were gaboon vipers, which are probably the biggest i think they are the biggest heaviest viper species they're certainly, so. they're certainly the heaviest aren't they because they're yeah. fat yeah they are serious creatures uh yeah so um basically the uh the experiment proved relatively i mean it, they were tentative in their sort of saying that this utterly completely proves that viper viper snakes can't sense heat but this experiment suggests that they're Ability to sense heat, if it is there, is markedly less developed than that of the pit vipers. Yes, and certainly doesn't come out or isn't visible when you shove warm and cold balloons in their face. Because as you say, they have been taken out of, you know, a usual ambush site and they have, this is quite a, um, something being presented to the snake experiment. It's not them going out of their way to, to find somewhere to be and to ambush and to work with. Yeah. yeah. So in that sense there is still some some behavioral wild behavior there that could that could modify this situation, yeah. Yeah. So um I was doing a bit of reading around this because uh, I just I don't know, heat pits just are awesome. 
Um, and I found a paper by Van Dyke and Grace in 2010 about the Copperheads, which featured mm. in, in the study we're talking about. They were um, one of the the crotaline, the, the pit vipers that were, were studied. And um, this study found that these Copperheads actually, they're not just, you, you actually alluded to this when you were talking a minute ago, and they don't just use the warmth of the thing they're looking at to focus on it they actually use thermal contrast in assessing a target yeah so if something is cool and with a warm background behind it they will they'll zone in on that if it's moving and they can actually do this where when they're blindfolded so these researchers blindfolded a load of copperheads and had warm and cool things go in front of them with the kind of opposite background so a warm item on a cool background and a cool item on a warm background and they consistently watched all the targets. So they, they're perfectly capable of uh, differentiating between warm and cool in their environment. And what, what was interesting, though, is that they did focus more and strike more on the warm targets on the cool background. But I guess that stands to reason, given the fact that they're, they're hunting endothermic prey and a lot of their predators are probably endothermic. But just the fact that they can also differentiate cool from warm is cool in itself. It's, it, it goes to show what how thorough of a mental picture they're creating for themselves using this sense only without without vision. Yes, and also the role of movement in target selection too. Because I bet you that would have had less of an impact if things hadn't been moving, if it was just a straight-up shape on a background. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Crips isn't just sitting still is, is a fantastic defence mechanism. Mm. And... Uh, It'd be interesting to see how that, how how much of an impact that played, and also um, snakes in tropical environments and the contrast there. I mean, they've got to be be able to pick out uh, hot and cold by quite a quite a fine margin in in tropical environments. I can't imagine there's a dramatic contrast between warm-blooded mammal and the sort of thirty-five plus degree heat of, yeah. a, of a tropical environment. Well. Um... Which rattlesnake was it? One of the rattlesnakes they studied. Uh, I read in one of the papers that they can sense a temperature difference of 0.003 degrees Celsius. Yes. See, there you go. That's that's fantastic right there. That's done the job. <laughs> I mean, that level of differentiation is just absolutely unbelievable. That's like a... Yeah, you know. I mean, what's that the difference between? I mean, that, that, that temperature doesn't... That doesn't mean anything to us. Not point three degrees. Like we would no, have no we just chance don't work of registering that. Scale. that. No, yeah. Not at all. Whereas to them, you know, that's the difference that they can key in on. Mm. And uh, I guess that helps because a lot of these snakes, certainly um, Asian pit vipers, and I know the same is true for American ones. They often hunt lizards, and um, being that lizards are ectotherms, the likelihood is that their temperature difference between you know they can effectively thermoregulate, so they can warm their bodies, and they will be warmer than the environment. But it's going to be significantly less of a difference than the difference between a mammal and its environment. So the fact that these snakes can pick out that little bit of temperature difference is obviously key to their survival. And that's what's what's pressured this evolution. Well, yes, I wonder if it is that that's pressured the evolution or it's um, come from somewhere else and then has been readapted for predation. Because to have that level of precision, you know, to have an effective, I suppose it could have just been a sort of botch job as it came along where it's like hot cold with with like a very rudimentary eye but there's no reason to think it hasn't come from 
helping to pick out thermal quality in the environment or something along those lines and then has been readapted. Yeah, they do for use predation. It. It's interesting that you say that there might be an alternative origin and reason for these pits evolving. And there is a paper about that um, by Crocmal and Bakken. And in this paper, they have Cretellus atrox, the Western Diamondback rattlesnake, and they blocked the pits of the rattlesnakes. And then they compared rattlesnakes with blocked pits and rattlesnakes with just normal functioning pits and saw how effective they were at thermoregulating. And they actually found that those animals with the pits uncovered were much, much better at selecting places to thermoregulate and find their sort of ideal body temperature than those that had had them blocked. So it could be that you're right. And actually it was, I mean, it could have evolved potentially with females trying to select the right temperatures to for gestation and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that's so a whole all, other... all played in together. Yeah, I, I wouldn't... It seemed, it, yeah, I mean, as an experiment, as blocking up heat pits and going sort of backwards and inferring that, I feel that's a little bit shaky because they're obviously used to using the heat pits. So it's not going to be the same as a snake that's used to not using heat pits to uh, ID thermal regulatory st- sites and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But at the same time, it does it does show that they are using it for that yeah. purpose, and that's a big deal. Yeah. Well, I think they kind of said some stuff about the the rattlesnakes being unmotivated to thermoregulate 100% well. Um, Yeah, and they sort of, um, yeah, I think they did actually stop short of saying that it's like definitely a significant component of behavioral thermoregulation, but they do do use it to some extent. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, there's going to be an interplay there, isn't there? Because... um... Because if you've got that sort of stuff, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna use it. We know that snakes are very in tune with their environments in a lot of ways, so yeah. there's no reason to think that they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't use it as well. That's really neat. That's very cool. Yeah, it is. I love this stuff. I think it's really, really awesome. Cool. So, uh, have we got anything else to add on infrared imaging in vipers? Uh, yeah. In infrared imaging in vipers. No, I don't think we do um i think that's just a rather neat little paper about demonstrating pit vipers versus non-pit vipers and there yeah yeah i feel like there's still some more um stuff to be done and i'm sure there has actually been more stuff i mean this is a 2004 paper so i'm sure there's a yeah something else but that's a nice it's a nice uh relatively clean example and a very nice simple experiment to get get your head around yeah it is it's really cool and i think uh like you say if anyone was in any doubt that pit vipers were the coolest snakes around now maybe they know better <laughs> <laughs> i don't know dude you you were just talking about boas and pythons and things having their heat sensitive uh are they yeah. pits are they, they pits yeah, so they've got like a succession of kind of grooves. I don't know that much about the formation of those. Maybe we'll do an episode on that. But they're, from what I can tell, they're a lot more rudimentary. Um, they still serve the purpose, but uh, mm. they're much, much less sensitive. By I did read, I did read something on it actually. They were less sensitive by an order of uh, by a factor of five or ten. So less, less sensitive. Do you think that's also going to be playing into the less, um, uh, uh, 
what's the right word? Um, a reduced sort of fidelity of, of the image, I guess, like a lower resolution. You know, I I wouldn't know where to start with that, but yeah, I mean, it could be it could be indicative of lots of different things. I suppose it could be that they rely less on it, that their behaviour is less ambush and slightly more. You know, there's elements of cruise forager in there. I don't know. Who knows? Mm. We'll have to co- we'll have to come back and do a Python uh, a Python episode and uh, yeah, I can't believe we haven't tracked already. down a paper on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. People must be studying them in that regard. So yeah, we'll have yeah. a look for that. Cool. So, uh, yeah, should we move on to paper number DOS? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so this one is by Martinez Freira, Crochet, Fard, Genies, Brito, and Vilo Anton. It's published in 2017, brand new, hot off the press. It's entitled Integrative Phylogeographic and Ecological Analyses Reveal Multiple Pleistocene Refugia for Mediterranean Deboya Vipers in Northwest Africa. This was published in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society. Um... Uh, yeah, so this is a paper by a team of scientists from Portugal, France, and Morocco, and I was impressed by this paper ma- like massively. Uh, the title makes it sound really exciting: integrative phylogeographic, phylogeographic and ecological analysis, um, and it is. But the running header of the paper, which is biogeography of North African Deboya vipers, is probably more of an apt title because it really is that thorough, isn't it? It is. Yeah, they go into all different aspects of of potentially how these vipers have. Uh, survived the Pleistocene and evolved into different sort of lineages and sub-lineages and sort of current situation of uh, the, I was going to say, the sort of current situation of the taxonomy there because that's still a little bit unresolved in places. Um, Yeah, it's it's fantastically thorough. Yeah, there is, the taxonomy has been a nightmare um, the delimitation of the two species which we're discussing, which are Deboya deserti and Deboya mariticana. Mm. Um, they have a figure in the paper which shows the five different published species lines, all of which are kind of tenuous in their own right. Um, and it, it really is just, or prior to this paper, I should say, it was a really, really confusing area of uh, the biogeography. Not, not that it is not confusing a little bit now, really. Uh, well, I mean, certainly in terms of the delimitation of species, it's not confusing anymore. No, it makes logical sense. It still takes a bit to get your head around. That's all. Oh, oh, sorry. No. Oh, yeah. No, what they found, what they found is logical. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I misunderstood. So what they found is like completely um, easy to understand the methods of how they got there and reading of the paper. Yeah. Not easy. Right. Very, very. Yeah. I mean, I spent a long time on this paper for sure. So the first sort of bit to talk about is how, um, well, I suppose there's a, a motivation behind looking into the evolutionary history of uh, species and why that's sort of worthwhile, because we're talking about massive uh, climatic shifts here with glacial and interglacial periods and just, I mean, seriously, seriously dramatic changes to landscapes that can drive all sorts of changes to species by changing which niches they have available, all sort of uh, creation of little allopatric zones in, in one species. So that's, you know, zones where the species have been separated so they can't interbreed, so there might be divergence between two isolated populations. Yes, so this thing, allopatric diversification. Yeah. 
without but then i i spent a little bit of time reading about that because um i really i kind of got hooked on this idea of they call it allopatric diversification without niche divergence so this is the idea that the species as the climate changes uh their habitat becomes split the areas they can inhabit and what that means is it leaves populations which were previously connected isolated yep. an example would be if they had a big range of two plains with a mountain in the middle and suddenly the climate got a lot cooler and the top of the mountain became inhospitable and those two spe- those two populations could no longer mix and got got separated but despite the fact that they were separate um, they're still kind of inhabiting the same niche in those two areas, doing the same things, um, but they're not experiencing interflow of genes. Mm. And so, um, yeah, they call it uh, niche conservatism. And uh, it basically kind of leads to genetically distinct populations because of the uh, mutations that are going on, but they're still kind of fundamentally filling the same niche. And that's kind of what's happened to some of the deboyer in northern Africa, isn't it? On a, on a small scale, repeatedly as the climate has changed over time. Yes, because that's what would. I mean, you've you've had multiple the the, the Pleistocene sort of characterised by this this cycle of glacial and interglacial uh, shifts. It's back and yes. forth, back and forth. So this hasn't just happened once. This has happened multiple, multiple times as glacials and interglacials have have come and gone. So you've had these little allopatric populations come and go and recombine and then separate again, but probably in a relatively, um, well, they suggest it's, it's going to be a relatively consistent way because the landscape itself is, is relatively consistent. Yes. Over that time, it's just the, the climate shifting and changing areas that are suitable for these snakes to live in. Yeah. yeah, you'd think my initial gut instinct would be that a world largely covered in ice caps would have been less hospitable for a kind of semi-desert arid dwelling viper. Um, but contrary to that, it was the glacial maximums that were actually times when the snakes, not glacial maximums, but where, as the glaciers expanded, these were times when the snakes had access to the largest range because the the area of Mediterranean climate expands southwards during glacial periods. And then when there's interglacial periods, there's less ice on the caps. Uh, the Mediterranean actually contracts back northwards. So like you say, whenever there was an interglacial period, the snakes struggled. They had less places to live. They were separated, this kind of allopatric... Um, mm. uh, you know, it's not quite allopatric speciation, but in terms of their genetic um, in terms of their genetic mixing it was significantly decreased and then once the glaciers start to expand again the snakes are able to once again go back and kind of mix um, at the same time you, you've got this this regular cycle going on you have dramatic um, changes in the Mediterranean there was, there was a bit that i've never heard of called the uh, messinian salinity crisis <laughs> around 5.3 million years ago it's like well, what on what salinity crisis what this sounds horrible what on earth's going on and it was essentially um the gibraltar strait closed and um basically shifted the med into a hyper uh, similar to your sort of caspian sea sort of situation 
Blimey. With high salinity, reducing water content, and just reducing the size of the med, so you had a greater amount of land routes across the Mediterranean. And um, there have been some other studies that have looked into the impact of this this pretty colossal event, because not only is it colossal in the sense of uh, it initially happening, but then the, the flood and the reopening of the Gibraltar Strait and the, and the recreation of, of the Med as we know it today is is quite dramatic itself. There's a Paolo et al. 2008 paper looking at uh, oscillated lizards and looking at when they diverged, their sort of European and North African uh, populations, when they diverged and whether that uh, linked up with this, this salinity crisis and how that worked. And what was quite surprising in, in that paper was it wasn't a simple story. It's not just this... You'd like it to be a nice, simple answer where they, they made use of the salinity crisis and got into Europe and then the salinity crisis ended and they were they were trapped and they were separated and then they diverged and it all makes perfect sense. But by the looks of it, they were probably already over there before the crisis. It wasn't just a simple vicarian event. Um, they'd already made it to some islands by oceanic uh, dispersal, and it was a much more complicated story, as it always tends to be with ecology. <laughs> it's never going to be simple, is it? But even these... I mean, this what sort of makes the studies we're talking about right now so valuable because you do have to look at it in that sort of detail and can't just pick a big uh, biogeological geographical event and be like yeah that that's probably what did it right there yeah that big event because there were so many things happening just on the regular you know in in the, in the background essentially with uh yeah, especially, especially when you're especially, yeah, and especially when you're talking about reptiles, like the dispersal capabilities of reptiles are pretty small, and so anything you're kind of discussing in terms of um, you know gaining ground or things like that, they're always going to be incremental over long periods of time, and mm. uh, yeah, once you factor in, I mean that's what I like about these papers, you just it gives you such a clear picture of, and it really makes you kind of realise that the species and the distributions that we're looking at today are a, a minuscule snapshot of what, what's going on both in terms of actually the species themselves because obviously they're on a genetic trajectory they're not really species you know species is a, is a construct by us but also um, there's so many things going on in terms of the climate and obviously with modern climate shifting the way it is really really dramatically um, it, it really hits home the fact that a lot of these species distributions have already begun to and are set to fundamentally change. So the, a lot of the biogeography of Earth is probably uh, in a pretty precarious position in many ways. In yeah, terms it's in of, quite dramatic flux, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And if, yeah, it, it certainly would seem, when you look at these, when you look at the sort of temperature changes and things like that that are being talked about in this paper, you know, from... You know, this is 150,000 years worth of history, but the temperature changes really aren't that dramatic compared to what we're experiencing today. So what was it? There was like, it was like six degrees cooler in the middle Holocene or something like that. Or was it the last glacial maximum? I can't remember. But one of them was six degrees cooler. And I mean, we're instigating a, a temperature change of two degrees inside 100 years. Um, yes, and poss possibly pushing that to four. I mean, when you start getting into those numbers, you are getting into 
things that have not been seen in in <laughs> well, certainly not recent years. But you are talking about glacial interglacial levels. That's that's pretty pretty significant. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy, and um, it's kind of equal parts terrifying and exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if uh, equal parts is quite right, but... Uh... Oh, there's also quite a smattering of sad. <laughs> <laughs> this this you... co- collage of emotion. Yeah, but this paper was really cool, and uh, I really like their diagrams showing the kind of um, suitable habitat for the animals. Because although it isn't that dramatic when you look at it, the scales of these maps is quite big, so... The, the amount of habitat they had suitable really was shrinking and growing. And like you say, you use the word flux, and that's exactly what it is. It's, it's constantly yeah. in flux. So should we just quickly go over what they sort of did? Because I feel yes. like we talked a lot about the context here and not about what they've, what they've actually done. And yeah, yeah. One of the first things they did was grab a bunch of pre-existing climate models and ran them to estimate uh, climate in the last last uh, interglacial period, last glacial maximum, uh, the mid-Holocene, and, uh, you know, current current conditions. Yeah, so they had four, didn't they? Those, so the, those were 120 to 140,000 years ago, 21,000 yep. years ago, 6,000 years ago, and today. Yes. And using that, that, those climate models, they could then model the, ne- the available niche that uh, these vipers would be using at those times, so then they had a nice range estimate through, you know, the past 100,000, uh, 200,000 years worth um, Yeah, it, during it, these big big changes. It sounds complicated, but when it is kind of fundamentally quite straightforward, they we know from where these snakes are now, the levels of rainfall and the temperature and all these kinds of things that they need to exist. And if you can look back in prehistory and see where these areas Sorry, if you can see which areas had these correct variables at any given time, you can work out exactly where would have been suitable for these snakes. Yeah, it certainly gives you a decent idea. I'm sure there's a level of um, flexibility in these snakes that we actually <laughs> perhaps Fle- don't know about. <laughs> flexibility, yeah. Oh, I see, yeah. Flexibility in the snakes, for sure. And also error in the models. Yeah, <laughs> not that the snakes are flexible and you can bend them around. Not but, but you, I mean, you can. <laughs> You shouldn't. Know. They're it. extremely venomous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you had you had this, and then also on top of this, they'd gone out and sampled a whole bunch of snakes. What if it's fifty-one tissue samples across this this area of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia? Yes. Um, and two hundred eighty two hundred eighty-two observations. Yes, which they fed in to get their current range estimate. Yeah, and, that was and for to their... build their their niche model. On. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Some of which were their own, actually. It sounds like they got out over the over about ten years in the field, by mm. from what I remember. Um, they gathered everything they had available to them, which is nice. It's nice to see combining different data sets to make. Uh, yeah, they did have yeah. to exclude quite a lot of their data points as well, though, because they were kind of clustered, which negatively affects their models, mm. which is kind of interesting. Um, a little bit disheartening, maybe, but if it makes the models fit, there you go, you got to do it. Well, yeah, you've got to make it spatially um, consistent, right? You you can't have loads and loads of points in one grid square. It would add additional weight to a lot of... Sna- like, if you just sampled loads in one area, 
your niche is going to be your niche model is going to be weighted to what makes the snakes in that particular area important as opposed to uh the niche over their entire range right yeah 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 so from their tissue samples they could do some phylogenetic work and work out which snakes and which areas are more related or less related to others yes they came up with sort of seven didn't they seven loose regions which were interrelated and not significantly different from another but had obviously been isolated for some time in the past yeah there was enough difference there to that they constituted different lineages i mean not distantly enough to be as you say different species or anything along those lines but enough that something must have made that happen because they they should be um less mixed well sorry less separated than those lineages suggest right yes if they're the same species across the entire range it should be all sort of relatively homologous in terms of their um genetics genetic material yeah mm. yeah i mean they they are they're they're similar up to a point aren't they they're they're yeah. similar enough that they're all well, we'll get into the systematics, but they're similar enough that they're all sort of the same species, but they're different enough to show that, like we were just discussing, uh, during the different glacial periods, they they have been separated um, geographically or otherwise. Yeah, so that's one of the things they pulled out from... We said that they, they modelled climate for these different uh, periods, and then what they did was combined all those together and where there was consistent, stable climate across all of them, you can pick out these areas that can be termed sort of refugia, where the snakes could have stayed during um, unoptimum climates, <laughs> I guess, yeah. or periods where the climate's just not really working for them. And these these are the areas where you're going to get those those little populations that can be stable and consistent, and then expand upon and expand out from when uh when the climate's more more suitable yes i do like the idea of them being called refugia because obviously refugia to us is a piece of felt that you find a, a slow worm under <laughs> so you uh <laughs> you, you get these these deboya vipers hunkering down oh, oh no the ice has retreated better just sit here in this nice floodplain for a bit until the habitat's more suitable and I can spread my genes elsewhere again. Obviously, exactly. it's, it's thousands of years. <laughs> thousands yeah. upon thousands of years sitting, yeah. waiting, watching. <laughs> Ambushing. Not using heat pits, though, as we now know. Yes. They they don't need them. No. I bet they like... I would, they, they would like them if they could have them. <laughs> well, they like them so much they can downright go and evolve them, can't they? <laughs> um... Yeah, so, well, yeah, so that, um, yeah, as you said, they found out these these, these seven distinct areas. Um, have you got anything more, or should I go, what will be missing? Should I go seven, on to this? Seven distinct areas? I thought it was seven, wasn't it? Yeah, so these stable areas, you had some in sort of high to middle Atlas Mountains, some in northern Algeria, northern Tunisia, so a lot of, lot of coastal areas. And then you had this weird sort of, smattering of very small restricted areas in the in the dra valley yeah in morocco really... yeah so that's southwestern northeastern morocco and along that side of uh side of north africa and they all seem to be quite separated but lots of little ones 
and that's what we have for stable areas. And in terms of uh, genetic lineages, they seem to match up rather well. So for lineages, we had a big lineage that co covered, sort of, they called it a Central Eastern lineage, that was all the way from North Tunisia all the way over into North Morocco. We had then a, a Rif Atlas lineage that was the very top point of Morocco. Another one, uh, W Atlas, which I presume is, is West Atlas, isn't it? Which was on the coast in sort of northwestern Morocco. And those two were especially interesting because they look, um, in terms of climate, during during some of these, these poorer times for the snakes, that they should be connected. But there's a large river that splits them straight down the middle, which seems to be the reason why they have uh, some sort of differentiation between the two. Which is rather remarkable, really. I mean, it's just a, a river splitting these snakes straight down the middle. That's... Yeah, especially when you consider that at some of these points, um, like when the glacial maximums were... I, I, my impression was that a lot of these areas would have been kind of drought-ridden. So for a, for a river to have separated the populations in those times is even more of a surprise. Yeah, and, and consistently enough to... The, the patterns are still visible now in modern specimens. Yeah. That's what's quite remarkable. Is like even at the, It's still there. There's this um, ghost of climates past changing our snakes today. Yeah. And then yeah. a whole bunch of lineages off into the, the southwest of Morocco with the Drava Valley and and uh, sort of little, smaller refugee areas down there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I've covered... <laughs> I think that's there, right? I think I've yeah, covered no, yeah, everything. Yeah, no, you're absolutely yeah. right, yeah. yeah. So shall I go on to the systematics or is there any bits of it we need to touch on, do you think? No, I, I, I think... I think that in terms of in terms of the climate pushing this sort of allopatric... Uh, separation at times of, of climate inoptima or whatever the right word is. I like that word. Suboptima. Inoptima. Um, is, is quite remarkable and they've done a very good job at pointing out how this, this widespread species or species complex or whatever has, um, has the sort of remnants of old climate. I really like that. I really like this, this long deep time perspective of a, of a species. I think that's absolutely remarkable. And it's a, I, well, I really like the paper. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I've, I enjoyed it an awful lot. Um, like, like we were saying earlier, you know, you really have to get stuck into this. It's a sit down and think kind of one, but um, yeah. It's worth really, it. Yeah, lots of Googling terms. <laughs> there <laughs> were some sentences where I Googled three or four words. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for the climate and geographical connections because that it, it, it is cool. Yeah. It is really cool. It, it's a pretty interdisciplinary paper when you when you think about it. Yeah, I guess it kind of uh, it tickles our geography nerves, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, our uh, geographic history. So you kind of alluded there to the systematics of these spe species. Is it species? Um, and they actually did mention this at the very end of the paper. Um, I, I mentioned earlier on that there was a, a lot of confusion surrounding Deboya deserti and Deboya mariticana and mm. whether or not, well, where the line of the two species should be drawn. Um, and basically it was all down to morphological and coloration traits. So it was these snakes are different shapes and they look different. Therefore, they must be two species. 
Um, so number of ventral scales and number of vertebrae have been used to, to decide whether or not they're different. But there was a study recently uh, in northern France on the aspic viper, Vipera aspis, and that was by Lorde et al. 2004. And what they found was that actually those measurements, ventral scales in particular, aren't reliable means of delineating species. Because what they found was that if, um, yeah, if the gestating females, so the females that had babies inside them growing, were exposed to hot weather during the early part of their gestation, they would actually have babies that were born with more ventral scales. Mm. So if you're using that as a means of delineating species, you're barking up the wrong tree because in actual fact, all it means is the animals you're finding and catching with more ventral scales were born in years with hotter dunes. Um, Do you think that's that's consistent outside of uh, that species, right? Yeah, and I mean, you can't presume it is, but when you find something like that in a closely related species, well, closely related, relatively closely related species. Yeah, I would say relative. Yeah, it is relatively yeah. closely related. I mean, we're talking yeah. same same family, aren't we? Yeah, that you know, they're, they're, yeah. And uh, when you see that in a, in a, in a species like Vipera aspis, you kind of you know you can't help but wonder. Well, is that really a, a good enough character? And you know, morphological evidence for species is tenuous anyway these days, given the fact that we have access to to genetic information. And, well, it's nice um, to have both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it is it's good to have both um and so the other what the other thing which they used to dis- distinguish the two species murticana and deserti is the fact that they were different colors and had different color patterns however um color pattern is obviously really heavily selected for because if a predator can spot you you are out of luck so mm. color pattern is prone to change um you know you've got phenotypic plasticity where one sort of group of genotype can be expressed in multiple ways and if one's being selected for in a neighboring region and the other one isn't, you know, two two species which share remarkably similar genetic information can appear markedly different quite quickly in in evolutionary time. Um, yes, and we talked we talked about in the what was it episode eight how um, mimics can exist outside of of supposed selective pressures to keep them mimicking and all, all sorts. It adds a lot of confusion to yeah. coloration as a uh, delineator. Yeah, yeah. The long and short of it is that just because things look different doesn't mean they are different. Um, And so what these authors found when they looked at the um, genetic information for these alleged two species was that actually all the animals they sampled were relatively shallow in their genetic divergence. And so although there were these seven distinct lineages, they were all the same species. And so from that, I think it's the very last line of the paper, they just dropped the bomb like... There's only one species, and it's Deboya mariticana. So forget about deserta; it's not a thing. <laughs> yes, yes, there is only one. There can, there can be only, only be one. one. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Highlander. Although, as we know, not always Highlanders because sometimes the climate doesn't suit them. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I don't fully understand the joke you're making there. <laughs> no, all I'm saying is that when they retreat into their suitable habitats, they're not always highlands, so they're intermittent highlanders. Oh, yes. Yes, intermittent highlanders. Yeah. The Deboer Viper. <laughs> yeah, but they're really cool snakes. We haven't mentioned what they look like. Google one, Deboer Mariticana. They look very cool. Mm. 
And what's also interesting is it does appear that all these, yeah, as you say, it seems to be all one species, sister to um, Palestine. So there's been a, been a separation from these guys and Palestine in the mid, what was it, mid to late, sorry, yeah, mid to late Miocene. Um, oh, I suppose mid to late is going to be anything from uh, like 18 to... Five million years ago, the separation, which is just before the the Miocene, also marks that end of the salinity crisis. So, thank goodness, a lot of interesting things going on before the end of the salinity crisis, and who knows, maybe maybe their differentiation um was involved in that some way. So maybe the the um. Oscillated lizards. Their story has is, is applicable outside of uh, the lizards. Who knows? Yeah. I I don't. I haven't read anything on it, but um, <laughs> potentially interesting. Yeah, 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 for sure. Another another topic for another podcast, mate. Oh yeah, yeah. I love these deep deep evolution. Well, I suppose they're not actually all that deep when you t- when you're talking about uh, evolution, but. Uh, deeper than what I'm used to in terms of time. Yeah, I mean, if you were familiar with the passing of a thousand years, you'd you'd go mad. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Anyway, I think that that does uh, does that paper, wraps that up quite nicely. Yeah. Sweet. So, uh, on to paper Trez. Um, So, paper three, we're bringing it into the sort of modern era, after all that talk of Pleistocene glacial cycles, uh, identifying global priorities for the conservation of vipers. And this is by Maritz et al. There's a whole bunch of authors there. Uh, published 2016 in Biological Conservation. Hmm. Yes. Global priorities for vipers. Yeah, so um, they sort of set out to get a really, really thorough, in-depth look at exactly what was going on with the conservation status of vipers and which ones were sort of in most dire need of protecting. Mm. Uh, Not dissimilar to what the um, IUCN does, but uh, they said themselves there's kind of only this partial overlap and their findings could be used to either inform IUCN or in some cases kind of refute ICN and, and, and... is a little bit more thorough in some ways and just different in other ways. Yeah, well, it's critical to have multiple assessors of uh, things like this because it catches uh, small, you know, accidental or, or sort of systematic biases in how things are identified and quantified and things like that. So it's, it's nice having a bit of checkup. It's not saying that the IUCN is, is, is wrong or right, it, but it is an alternative and each checks each other. There's, you know, there's nothing. There's no competition here. It's, it's all everybody's working towards the same goal. Yeah. Um, it just might help uh, pick out certain things that other indexes have missed. Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, I mean, you don't want to do too many different ones. Two is probably sufficient because at the end of the day, at some point, you want to start putting your resources into actually doing the conservation rather than finding out which ones need conserving. But yeah, certainly this isn't isn't too far at all. And I think they did a really thorough job, mm. from what I understand. Anyway, I mean, it's yeah. So, um, 
yeah, they kind of keyed their focus into conservation prioritization. Um, so traditional kind of conservation plans are sort of reactive, where they're looking at um, they're looking at where, what what's kind of happened already. So you know, looking at threats like human population uh, expansion, um, habitat loss and change and fragmentation and stuff like that. Um, whereas this is a proactive um, conservation action. So rather than looking at ones which are already kind of imperiled, they're looking at the ones which are under threats from similar threats, but they're kind of focusing on animals which are not replaceable. So they're kind of being a little bit more focused in their targets. So rather than picking things which are just kind of appealing or uh, pretty, they're picking things which are either genetically distinct in their own way, you know, don't have close relatives, or um, they're kind of diverse functionally. So you, you end up with species that are conserved, which are different from each other, um, rather than just conserving a, you know, a, a very similar small group of organisms, you, you end up with more genetic distinctiveness conserved in this way, if that makes some sense. Yeah, you want to preserve functional diversity, right? That's, that's yeah. the term for it, I that's think. That's the term they use, yeah, functional yeah. diversity. And, and to be fair, you know, these guys, they do do a bit of both in this. This is sort of the point, is they combine them as well and, and really get into uh, how these two patterns may be different and how you should certainly examine both before you start making your conservation decisions and, and assigning resources. Yeah, so they, they did two indexes, didn't they? Well, they did two measures that you just said. They did the threat index. Yeah, bef bef sorry, before you jump into that, do you want to do just a wee bit of background of... Um, we're talking about global priorities, so just a sort of background of how global vipers are and that sort of little bit of info yeah, there? Yeah, 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 go for it, go for it. Talking about roughly 330 species in uh, Viperidae, uh, and they're worth get data on the, the majority of these guys. Uh, they are found all across the world, apart from Australia and Antarctica. Although, perhaps one day they will be in Antarctica. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and massively far-ranging. They go all the way up to 65 degrees north with uh, Vipera berus, that's just obscenely cold for a, for a snake. And also really, really high up. Uh, highest ranging vipers can be found 4,800 metres above sea level in Nepal. And that's uh, Gloidius Himalayanus. Clues in the name. <laughs> yeah. But absolutely, absolutely crazy. And they're also quite important in terms of uh, their burden on people in terms of snake bite. That's, that's they're quite a critical aspect for studying vipers. Uh, tend to be ambush hunters, diverse array of prey, and are found all over the place in all sorts of habitats, take all sorts of different types of prey, and they're really, in that sense, quite critical for a lot of ecosystems because they're playing quite a significant role and a diverse role across the world. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, I mentioned earlier on, actually, when we were talking about the pit vipers and non-pit vipers, that there was two subfamilies within the, the vipers. Um, there's actually four, not two just to correct myself there's the uh azimiopine and causine as well um mm. where azimiopine is only that one species which i think i don't know if it's the one species or not not my um area of expertise uh 
which is the Fees Viper. And then there's also the Causinae with, with a few different species in there as well. Um, so yeah, they're like you say, they're incredibly diverse. They make up nearly 10% of all snakes, actually. 9%, I think they said. Yeah, 9% of all snakes. Yeah. But disproportionately threatened. Because they make up 20% of the snakes listed as threatened by the IUCN. Well, so... I wonder, because I saw that and I thought, actually, maybe they're also, because they're so popular, maybe they've been disproportionately um, checked. Did they did they account for that? Oh, compared, compared to things like Colubridae... Um... Now, now, did they? Because they were citing a Bolm et al. 2013 paper Ooh, in that, Bohm. which I do have, and I did look at, and they have a rather superb table in there, which is threat distribution across uh, squamate families, I believe it's restricted to. Oh, no, no, it's, it's all... Uh, yes, it appears to be squamate families. And... Well, if we look at something like, uh, g- give me a give me a snake family you'd like to test this against. Homolopsidae. Homolopsidae. So, uh, expected percentage being threatened would be, well, it's not even zero point zero zero, and actual is zero point one seven. So they're dis- disproportionately threatened as well. Ah. Um, but there are some that aren't, as you picked one that apparently was... Yeah, Colubridae, you'd expect it to have 0.07. Uh, is that an index or is that a percentage? I think that's a... Oh, wait, forget all the indexes. I've got a nice... They've done a nice plus minus here that I can just go down. Under or over-threatened. So over-threatened... Uh, let's, let's find out an under-threatened. Under-threatened would be Colubridae. Another under-threatened does not exist. So, <laughs> actually, pretty much all squamate families, they're either not. There are a few that are not significant, like uh, a gamma day, and and uh, Varanidae, but the vast, vast majority of them are all more threatened than you would expect with the numbers of, of uh, species. Right. Pretty bleak picture then. Well, a bleak picture, but the point is that there are people doing the work out there to find out what needs help and it turns out that actually everything kind of needs help so uh (laughs) (laughs) hey Um, in terms of in terms of hey you need to justify your research really easy because everything needs help unless you're studying some dirt common colubrid yeah (laughs) so um so yeah vipers are incredibly diverse uh in their number of species and uh, yeah, this paper, they set out to kind of work out which ones were most sort of in need of conservation measures by two indexes. We can go into that now, right? I think we're ready. Yeah, well, two sort of three indexes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, two sort of three. So they had the threat index, which is kind of, what's it? It's, it's, it's largely based on their sort of geographical distribution um, and sort of the rationale is that species with small, um, very human-influenced and poorly protected ranges are more likely to be under threat than those which are kind of tolerant of human-disturbed landscapes and have broad yeah. ranges. So, you know, your example would be, uh, what did you just say? The Gloid- the Gloidius, the Himalayan pit viper yeah. versus, you know, that's probably much more threatened than, say, your puff adder, which is just, you know, living under everyone's house in South Africa. 
Yeah, so they they combined, as you say, range, uh, percentage of range in protected areas, and they also got a, an expert opinion on how well these species persist in uh, altered or anthropogenic landscapes. So it's it's not just what there is, but there's a bit of flexibility, uh, species flexibility integrated into that that uh, index. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the threat index. So that's their first measure. Their second measure was the evolutionary and ecological distinctiveness. So this is kind of working out how unique the species is in terms of its habitat selection and its morphology. So, you know, has it got a specialised diet? Is it an unusual size or shape? Um, And is it... um, Yeah, what was the other thing they did? They looked at how... Uh, Fecundity. Fecundity, yeah. So, Mm. um, you know, are they having... You know, if it's a... I mean, vipers are live bearers predominantly there are entirely aren't they they almost almost all give birth to live young notable exceptions include the azimiops vipers and the bushmaster good old bushmaster yeah after the bush exactly so uh yeah the other thing they did was they worked out the well the evolutionary distinctiveness score which is they look at the phylogeny so all the species and their interrelatedness. Specifically, and... specifically, the very quite recent one by Alan Carr et al. in 2016, which we were considering as being one of the uh, papers to look at in this episode. Yes, yeah, we were. Yeah, so they look at that and they, they were kind of checking to see um, which species were most unique in terms of their like evolutionary distinctiveness. So... They were dividing the length of the branch in millions of years by the number of species descending from that branch, and that gives them kind of a, a score for how unique the species is in terms of its um, evolution. Yes. And then, so that was the two, those are the two main ones: the threat index and the ecological evolutionary distinctiveness. Yeah. So those two were both standardized to between zero and one, so they'd have the both same weighting when they were combined. And then that was their third thing they did was combine the two indexes um, into the edge index edge um <clears throat> evolutionary yeah. distinct and globally endangered oh wow and then that, they... is a, that is a dynamite um what do you call those things acronym uh, acronym yeah that's a great one yeah that is top notch top notch acronym work and uh yeah they and from these from this from these metrics that they'd created they managed to plot onto some maps um mm. where the most endangered vipers were in terms of their distinctiveness and the threat that they faced yeah so what we have in the paper is a rather nice set of eight maps um that show general heat you know they've got their heat maps on the left four maps of heat maps that show species richness threat index ecological and evolutionary distinctiveness index and then their combined edge index and on the right, they've got four maps that just show the hotspots. So they were the top 10% uh, scoring cells of, of, you know, on the map. So the top 10% areas uh, yeah. for each one of those indexes. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, those kind of areas, they kind of loosely correlate to biodiversity hotspots anyway. And kind of, um, uh, they're not quite equatorial, but... You can see an element of equatorialness in them. Yes. Um, it's, one thing well, I'm it's su- quite gratifying that they, they are pretty uh, uh, con, con, contiguous with biodiversity hotspots. Is It means that a lot of these metrics and indexes being used 
are on the right path for yes. protecting, well, as we know, quite a lot of species. So, yeah, and there's a lot of spots. Good. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of spots that you might expect as well. You've got like Central West Africa, um, yeah, bit of the Amazon in there. You've yeah, got... two different, well, two or three different aspects of the Amazon in slightly different climatic or, or eco eco tones, eco regions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've got um, some of Far East Asia. You've got um, the Western Ghats. Is the Western Ghats? You can just see. Yeah, yeah. It's just this like <laughs> green line um, on the west of India. Yeah, and then uh, some of sort of Thailand, Malaysia, and a little bit of Indonesia smattered over there. Yeah, a couple of spots in the Middle East and a couple of bits of the southern United States as well, which I presume are sort of bolstered up by unique rattlesnakes. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Cool. So, yeah, like you say, it is quite gratifying to look at and it's kind of exactly what you might expect. But then equally, it's good to have the um, the quantitative analysis to back it up. Yeah, and it does pull out some interesting um, patterns. In terms of threat index, the top 30 threatened species were disproportionately island endemics. And we often think about islands being these sort of vulnerable uh, areas and populations, and this does seem to be backing that up to some extent, or at least that's where the human pressure is. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you look at the, um, the other list, which is the uh, evolutionary diversity one, evolutionary distinctiveness one yep and um what can we say about that well the top 30 are disproportionately african species Mm. 12 out of 30 although african species only count for 20 percent of all viper species ah that is interesting and that's not even you know add on top of that the 33 percent of the african species didn't really have enough data to be integrated into the study Wow, so they're massively disproportionately represented. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of uniqueness and specialization in African vipers. Yeah, I've got to say as well, seeing this list made me realize how many vipers I'm completely ignorant of. Yes, that's something we should mention. The, the table one here has the top 30 of the three indexes. I mean, there's some fantastic snakes on here that would be an absolute crime to lose. Um, one that jumps out at me is um, Protobothrops manchinensis. I was looking at Protobothrops as well. <laughs> yeah. Mate, those things are crazy. Yeah, so many wonderful species, and as you say, it it, it does. Um, vipers are fantastic, and it would be so nice to get a chance to see some of these wonderful species that I have never heard of. Yeah, so if humans could stop breeding and planting crops, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those that don't know, Protobothrops manchinensis is a, a pit viper from um, China. Uh, it supposedly spits venom, and it looks like it's made out of moss, and it's just super cool. When you say supposedly spits venom, yeah, how how supposedly is this? Who's saying this? So. Mark O'Shea. That's, Mark O'Shea I mean, says that this. seems like quite a reputable in his, source. In his book, Venomous Snakes of the World. Do you know what? I actually have that book here. Mangshan Viper. Hmm. So Mark says it's the only non-cobra reported to spit venom. Ah, okay. There we go. That's, that's what I was interested in, whether he had seen it himself or whether it was reports that he had reported on yeah, and uh, repeated. 
Yeah, that's the thing. So I don't know where he got that from. Interesting, though. Yeah, I mean, crazy. Like, imagine that. Yeah. What happened to you? Well, a viper spat in my face. Yeah. I saw a bite report from a Mengshan viper, actually, and it was pretty nasty. The guy got bitten by a baby one and his hand was all messed up. Yeah, man. Don't mess with vipers. Mm, no, not good. So, uh, well, we digress, but yeah. <laughs> God, sorry. Right. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, go on. Let's get into the discussion. Okay, so first thing worth mentioning in the discussion is how the threat level works against current IUCN red list guidelines. And it seems that species uh, labelled as least concern is everything up to 0.74 on their, on their scale. But what can be quite cool with this threat index that they have made is that it works for species that have not yet had formal um, uh, assessment by the IUCN and are still labelled as data deficient. Or they have had you know, formal assessment and there is not enough data to make an assessment. And so they have enough data on those some of those species, 11 of those, actually no, more than that, some of those species, to make some sort of inference on what they might be classified by the IUCN had they had enough data to do so. If that makes at all any sense, what I've said there. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So there they're suggesting 11 species that are currently held as data deficient could very well be considered threatened if they just go off the index that they've created, this this threat index. Yeah, and I think I would imagine the IUCN would be grateful for that information. And I'm sure, because it's the Viper Specialist Group um, that do it for the IUCN, and I'm sure that the authors of this are closely involved. They may even be some overlap I, in who those people are. I would put... I'm pretty sure that there's overlap. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's definitely got to be overlap. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's good for the IUCN because, I mean, you know... That makes it probably nice and easy for them to select potentially the next eleven species they uh they look at in term you know yeah it can help prioritize it yeah so it's um seventeen species not assessed yeah um that had scores over zero point seven five and eleven they seem to be uh yeah and they also yeah. said that nearly half the species which they had sufficient data to calculate the threat index but the are currently listed as data deficient by the IUCN appear to be of conservation concern, which is another worry. It, it is a worry, but it's nice to have this sort of early warning on them. And yeah. um, in terms of a, a good, cheap way of uh, assessing species, this is quite nice because it hasn't... Yes, obviously there's been required fieldwork because they're relying on expert opinion and other things like that, and there has been work put in. Yeah. It, this is something that could be updated as it goes along and uh, to keep tabs on, on species that aren't uh, that don't have current long term monitoring yeah. so it, it, it's, another, it's another weapon to uh, protect vipers with yeah and one thing they talked about I mean we've already kind of touched on the threats to the, to the vipers we, we know what they are really aren't they they're the broad you know the threats to diversity worldwide um but yeah, what they're was pretty generic. <laughs> yeah, but what was interesting is uh, they really highlighted uh, how many vipers basic things aren't known about, 
Morphology, yes. generally, we know because people measure them when they first find them. But then natural history information, like how many babies they have, what they eat. So many vipers still lacking this information. So much room for short notes. You know, we're, we're always singing the praises of the old uh, natural history note. We are, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's so much more to do. Well, it's precisely because these sorts of studies come along and make fantastic use of them. They gather them all up and and use them in this 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 framework and it and it brings out a rather insightful bit of information that can be used directly by conservationists so i think that's fantastic yeah and you're talking yeah it was 67 percent of species they had fecundity information on and 80 percent had dietary yeah so that's a pretty sizable gap and you know with with people are still describing new species and they need all that work done again on top of that to confirm it all, don't they? So, yeah, yeah, there are some gaps. I can't wait to hear about them being filled. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really interesting reading that stuff, little bite-sized snippets. So, um, yeah, the last thing they kind of mention is the uh, IUCN Viper Specialist Group, which I touched on a minute ago, uh, which is sort of like the world's leading experts in viper conservation biology. And um, they are all part of the IUCN. And in fact, you can follow them on Facebook. They post some quite interesting stuff. Um, mm. They they post, uh, I'm not sure if it's yearly, but they post an update document, which makes for really good reading. And it's got some really good sort of like good news stories about viper conservation, um, of which there are quite a few. Uh, so it's nice to get involved with that sort of stuff. And like it's all open access. You can just click and download it. So um, check those guys out if, you, if you're interested. Yeah, and I I just wanted to mention a good story of uh, viper threat, viper conservation effort, and then um, I suppose a sort of unhappy ending. And that's the story of those those adders that were studied by Madsen et al., um, where habitat loss was was pushing them into sort of an isolated inbred uh, population. Uh, they then augmented the population with some from outside and boosted the diversity and boosted the population. And they sort of recovered a bit. And then there was a wall built across the island where they lived. And suddenly the populations crashed again because they were all, all separated. And that's if if people are interested in like current threats and uh, a good long term study of a viper population, the Madsen et al. stuff is great because it's a great little although slightly sad story, it's good to have this sort of trio or more so of papers that show you what can happen in, in one in one population of vipers over quite a short space of time, really. And, uh, yeah, I've shoved all those in the show notes, all, all Madsen et al. or Madsen uh, Uvari. Yeah, that kind of sequence of papers is really interesting because it tells a story and it starts off with a massive conservation success and then it just... <laughs> takes you downtown with a huge like they built a wall and now all the others are dead <laughs> yeah it was a problem hey solution oh no yeah so it was the fact that this population had very little genetic flow didn't it and so they let a load of they let a load of males go everything looked peachy and then some developer decided to build a wall the adders couldn't get around anymore they couldn't travel was it from their hibernacular you said to the uh to their to their eating, to their foraging grounds, something like that. And then it kind of transpired that they were all dead. <laughs> yeah, it was it was splitting hibernation sites and summer habitat and, and all sorts, yeah. It's not even a big brick wall, that's what's so sort of tragic about it. And you can they've got a good um 
uh, time scale of, of the populations, the number of male adders found from 1981 to 2010. And... It's looking okay around 20, then it dips down in the sort of early 90s where you have this problem with inbreeding depression and, and pressure. And then it boosts back up as they've, they've added additional vipers to the population and augmented and it's growing, it's growing. It's all the way up to 50 vipers in, in 2005. Then by 2009, it's down to 10 or 12. And it, it's pretty dramatic. Mm. Yeah, it's really sad. Let that be a lesson to you, Donald Trump. <laughs> oh no, he's getting... <laughs> Don't build walls, it hurts vipers. It hurts the animals. At least look, put little holes that the, the animals can go through. Yes. Hmm. Man. Right, so, on, <laughs> on that rather sour note... Uh, what are you bringing us down here, man? I'm sorry. Hey, that paper was kind of depressing. It was always going to be depressing. Um... Yeah, I mean, it is and it isn't. It, it It is in the sense that, yes, there has to be a lot of work done, but then at the same time, it's sort of, yeah, we can do this because stuff has been identified. We know where the target, you know, the targets are. We've got a list of top 30 viper species that need extra attention and things like that. Yeah. And um, it, in, in a sort of positive sense, it gives good justification for more viper research. Get out there and find some snakes and make sure they're safe yeah absolutely so uh right on that note speaking of the vipers let's talk about a brand new species of viper oh, uh, so this is our species of the bi-week and the paper uh is by gower et al there's loads of authors uh, a new large species of bitus uh, Grey, 1842, Serpentes viperidae, from the Bale Mountains of Ethiopia, published in Zootaxa just last year. And uh, yeah, so this is a viperine viperid. <laughs> a viperine viperid. <laughs> yeah, so it's from the subfamily Vapirinae. It doesn't have the heat pits we were talking about earlier. Uh, from the genus Bitis, which uh, kind of sub-Saharan Africa and southwest Arabian Peninsula um, of which there were 17 species, now 18 after this one is added. Yeah, and interestingly though, the genus Bitis is considered to include the world's smallest and the world's largest vipers. Which is the smallest? Uh, so, f- as far as I know, it's Bitis schneideri. Cool. And our our big boy is uh, Bitis gabonica, surely. Yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah, the, uh, the gabon viper. Awesome. I, I, I think... I think. Certainly it's the heaviest. It may not be the longest. I'd imagine the Bushmaster's longer. Oh no, they're not in they're not in Bitis at all. So that's just Yes, but the point is that Bitis holds both the smallest and the largest of vipers. How to make a hash of something by Tom Major. <laughs> <laughs> There's not one bigger than Bitis Gabonica, surely. If um, if they I, oh man, imagine if there was though. Imagine if there was a viper the size of a Burmese python. There was once. It's extinct now. Don't bring these these tragic things up. What, you really would prefer if there was a ginormous viper roaming around? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so would I, to be fair. Be <laughs> what sort of question is that? Yeah. You'd be able to put a GPS tracker on that bad boy, no worries. Oh, mate, easy tracking. Easy. <laughs> I'd put two on a backup one as well. <laughs> um... <laughs> 
Yes, so biggest viper is Bitter Scabonica. Yeah, and the We're smallest is Bitter Schneiderai, the Namaqua dwarf viper, which is just right. teeny, teeny, tiny. It's, uh, yeah, it's only 18 to 25 centimetres total body length, including the tail. That's pretty small. Yeah, really, really small and very cool. And uh, anyway, easily fa- be eaten by Gabonica. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, except I don't think they share the same range. That's just as well. Yeah, no, they don't. So, uh, it is just as well, blimmin' act. So, prior to this species being discovered, there were known to be two species of bitters in Ethiopia. The puffadder, bitters ariatans, which we discussed before, and the Ethiopian mountain viper, bitters parviocula. Uh, then, since around 1990, Wolfgang Bohm, who is one of the authors of this work, who we've just been talking about in regards to the other paper, had been planning to publish a mysterious new species of snake, which was known from one specimen labelled as Bitus parviocula, but it looked slightly different somehow. It had a different mm. colour pattern and some scalation slight differences. Um, however, this kind of all seems to have fallen by the wayside because, you know, that was 26 years prior to this being published. Um, however, then, 30 years later on, another one of the authors, Evan Bweckley, spotted, sorry, Evan, Evan Buckley, probably hashed that up, sorry, spotted one in the Bale Mountains and took a photo proving that it occurred in Ethiopia and kind of reinvigorating the description process. And uh, what was amazing about this sighting was that four of the people that Evan was with had actually worked in the area for three years and none of them had ever seen one. Mm, The definition of cryptic. Yeah, super sneaky. It's just a cool species of bitters, isn't it? Did you see the, uh, of course you did, the CT scans in this paper comparing it to Parviacula? Mm, yes, I am a fan of these these um, CT scans. Mate, the way you can see, everyone should go and have a look, the, the, the classic viper fang, like folded up mm. inside the top jaw. It yeah, just... they've got a really sort of brutish looking skull, don't they? They're, they're, they're mean. Yeah. looking yeah yeah um no horns though on this one um no and it was put in the subgenus macrocerastes yes so within bitus there's another one there's 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 bitus genus bitus subgenus bitus and there's also G- subgenus macrocerastes i don't know if there's any more but this one was made macrocerastes oh, when you start getting into subgenuses my eyes start glazing over to be honest yeah yeah fair enough fair enough I just thought it was worth a mention because maybe there's a taxonomist listening <laughs> <laughs> we don't like your kind <laughs> I'm joking <laughs> oh no that's no, not that's true that's obviously not true I'm only joking if that was no. true we wouldn't even have species of the bi week that's very true yeah of course I was just being it was um it was uh it was uh it was uh lunacy for comic effect. <laughs> so they called this snake Bitis Harena, which I think is quite a nice name and it's because it was the species that they the species, the individual they spotted was in the Harena forest after all that time. They saw the live mm. one in the Harena forest. And there's actually a photo of it in the um in the paper. Yes, it is one fat viper. <laughs> It is holy fat. smokes. Well, it to me it looks like um, if you crossed, you know, a, a, an African viper with a trunk snake. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that because um, in their description, their formal description of the holotype, they discuss it. They they suggest it's quite a um, slender snake for the genus Bitis. But well, it's it's slender, but it looks well wrinkly. Yeah, that one. It's almost it looks as like if it's, it's underfed. Yeah, it looks a bit ropey, and also I think maybe it was like flattened out on the road, warming up or something. It, it doesn't. Oh, that would yeah, that could actually explain. But yeah, it why looks... it looks so sort of. Yeah, your description of it is spot on. It's just like, it looks like a blob. It looks like it's got like no muscle tone. It's a handsome yeah. snake, but it doesn't look like it's in the best shape. No, I suppose it, the bit that sort of makes me think it's quite odd is there's a, where the tail meets the body, there's quite a sharp uh, intake. It, like the, the tail is, is thinner than the uh, the rest yeah. of the body that makes it, it could, yeah. So it could be sort of flattening itself out and why it looks sort of a bit... Yeah, it could just um, be old and it's odd. got like love handles. Maybe it's uh, a female that's old or something like that. I don't know. Could be that. Old lady snake. Yeah. But, um, well, cool, isn't, cool it is a female, the holotype, isn't it? Yeah, female yeah, but, of 625 millimeters. Yeah, the holotype. Although that's is, not the holotype, is it? The that's, photo, that's the one they yeah. saw. Yeah. I don't know My if bad. they sexed that one. I don't think they did because they didn't catch it. Well, it'd be quite tough to do so then. Yeah. Yeah, can't ask it. <laughs> it's rude. One day, it's one rude. day we'll be able to. <laughs> yeah, one day that'd be cool. Hey, so um, yeah, just a cool little new species of bitis. Um, Bales mountain adder is their suggested common name as well, which is worth mentioning. The Bales mountain adder, or is Bale it Bale yeah, mountains adder? The Bale mountains adder, which is cool because yep. both the common name and the scientific name pertain to where it's found, so it makes perfect sense. They haven't re- named it after someone. Yep, um, which is cool. Um, yeah, they do say in their little conservation section it might be in peril. The area is in a national park, but it's under quite intense pressure from around and about. Yeah, and illegal set- settlements and that sort of sort of thing. Yeah. Hey, you know. Same same story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a cool snake. Um, yeah, sweet. I think that does. You got anything else to add on uh, Bitis Harena? Only that the holotype holotype had one fang intact that was approximately eleven point six millimeters long. Oh, it's quite big, isn't it? It's not small. Yeah, that could so, really lodge in you, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't want to get tagged by that. Yeah. So, so that I guess, uh, yeah, Bitis herena. Yeah. New species. Welcome to science. Yeah, has been around for a while, but has been very hard to find. Yeah, one of the sneakiest vipers going. Uh, so, what should we do next? Should we move on to corrections? Let's do some, Let's some do corrections and clarifications. Should we do a roundup first of the four papers? Let's do a roundup and. <laughs> okay, so uh... shut up, yes man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so that concludes our sort of uh, discussion of vipers. Um, we started off with a nice story about pit vipers and you know why, as we've already said, they're so unbelievably cool. They can see heat. They're basically the predator. Then we moved on to um, an interesting paper about Pleistocene refugia for vipers from the genus Deboya. Turns out there's only Deboya murticana in that area. Deboya deserti, no longer a valid taxon. Mm, um, and it was so delicious too. <laughs> oh my god. 
<laughs> and then we talked about identifying global priorities for viper conservation cool paper um highlight some stuff which hopefully will be taken into action now by uh, people working all over the world and then our new species of the bi-week bitis harena uh, our black and yellow viper yes true viper true viper so corrections we had received quite a few messages from everyone which we're really grateful for telling us what we've got wrong, which we knew we must have been doing, but it turns out people have been saving them up. <laughs> no, some... this, is, this is fine. We can blitz them. This is good. No, yeah, no, 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 this is good. We actually, yeah, thank you very much because it's good. It's good to see that. Right, it's awesome to know that people are listening and uh, actually, you know, people who are experts enough to hear that we're getting things wrong and identify them. Like, that's brilliant. Really, really yes, cool. Yes, it's, it's very gratifying, actually. Yeah. Yeah, really nice to know. So um, do you want to start or shall I start? We got a whole bunch from Scott Eper. Yeah, Scott Eper. Yeah, correct correct pronunciation. Sorry if that's wrong. That's how I would pronounce it. Yeah. Okay. Um, So I'm just going to rattle through the first two. One that common blue tongue uh, skinks lizards. They are skinks, aren't they? I'm not stupid. Yeah, can grow up to 500 millimeters SVL, so pretty sizable. That's a big lizard. Um, second one is my dodgy pronunciation of Myobactracus Gouldi, it's Gouldi, not Gouldi, or whatever the heck I said. So it's Gouldi, named after John Gould. Yeah. 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 Remember the little turtle frogs smashing through eating termites? Fantastic. Yeah, man. Those little guys. They're hilarious. So, um, before I dive into the one that's taxonomical, um, we... Uh, said about whether other death adders outside of the species studied might use luring, I believe. And Scott was saying that that, that does occur um, in vari- various others. Um, but it is dependent on, you know, there is variety between species and also between individuals, which is quite neat. Mm. This was in episode 8, our mim- Mimics, where we talked about... Um... Yes. Yeah, the the what are they? Def- the we were, we talked about puff adders in in terms of the actual paper we were doing, but we also yeah. talked about Hagman et al. studies that were the death adders. Yes, that's right. And it was some of the snakes used were he actually has like personal knowledge of. So yeah, he he he's seen in multiple species of Acanthophis the fact that they do this caudal luring where they wiggle the tail in an attempt to seduce small animals into strike range. Yes, but it's it's not completely universal, and there is variety and uh, diversity in in luring, which would be very interesting to know if uh, that has some sort of pattern associated with it, be it age or sex or locality or some sort of conditional thing that that's playing into that. It seems it seems like there's a lot of interesting uh, diversity in death adders, and they're a rather fascinating group of snakes. Yeah, they certainly are. I've never actually... I can't even remember ever seeing one. I definitely haven't. Yeah. I'd like to. <laughs> I'd like to as well, yeah. So the other stuff is we referred to a death adder as the northern death adder when we should have referred to it as the floodplain death adder. Mm-hmm. Um, with regards to one of the... Or both the Hagman studies, actually. And which is now seems to have been elevated to its its own uh, own separate species, which is uh, Acronophis hawkeye. And that was in regards to, yeah, the Hagman papers with the 
uh, fatal attraction stuff with them being able to pick out and decide uh, whether to leave or just straight up consume native frogs, which was I don't know how much detail we went into it in the in the in the podcast, but it's absolutely fascinating that some frogs they'll leave for forty two minutes to let the toxin degrade before they eat it and all sorts of stuff. And essentially, this has all come out from an earlier paper in two thousand and five. This the species delimination from a Worcester et al. 2005 paper that did a big phylogenetic investigation. Um, stopped short of elevating the species there, but since it's been elevated in, or, or at least there's been further study done and further support added to, to the uh, preliminary mitochondrial phylogenetics, in books and other publications, which I don't have immediate access to. Yes. But it's it's there and it's out there. So, cool. um, the other thing I just wanted to mention on top of that was, if you want a... Because I did a sort of, you know, rough digging in Australian taxonomy while I was at this, there was a relatively short and easily readable uh, paper by Williams et al. in 2006 called The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, um, Australian snake taxonomists and the history of taxonomy in Australians' venomous snakes, um, which is quite a nice little breakdown of stuff prior to now, prior to 2006, of the situation in Australia with regards to snake taxonomy and all that. And that's quite a nice starting point if uh, if you wanted to know more. Cool. Um, and so the last... Uh, correction which was given to us by scott was regarding episode six our species of the bi-week erwin's turtle elsea erwin i i said that i couldn't find it or it wasn't published in a peer-reviewed journal or something like that but in actual fact it was it was published in a journal called monitor um i couldn't find it on the internet anyway i did see a citation though which was pretty unequivocally that so yeah that's the final correction elsea erwin i so named for um steve erwin Cool. Well, thank you, Scott, for the corrections, because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. Keep, keeping us honest. It's good. It's yeah. Good. Ca- catching those mistakes. The final one, I had a correction from episode seven for sorrel frogs. Uh, I stated that the northernmost species of tree frog from the family Hylidae was the lowland burrowing tree frog, Smilisca fodiens. This is, in fact, incorrect. Uh, in my defence, the paper that we cited, which was Enalcyon Levano et al. 2013, also got it wrong. Um, in fact, there are numerous species from the family Hylidae that are further north. Uh, there's three species from the genus Sudacris, maybe more, I think it's three, and quite possibly the American green frog Hyla cinerea. Uh, thank you, Ian Garofalo, for that. Uh, he contacted us via Twitter. Cool. Well, I think that's... I think we've done... Hopefully, <laughs> we've caught everything that's been Well, said. we've either sorted it or we've made more mistakes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, nah, I'm sure it's fine. I mean, um, I'm, I'm always, I'm, I am genuinely nervous when it comes to taxonomic yeah, stuff. It's... I constantly am, because it's always going to change in a couple of years' time anyway, probably. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> But it's good to catch it now while we can. Yeah, and you don't. And hopefully, wanna... I've caught it correctly. Yeah, you don't want to accidentally contribute to like taxonomical misinformation either, because it's quite a tenchy subject, and rightly so. Well, yes, you know, we want to be on the right side of all that and trying to. Uh, it's it. I'm less con. Yeah, it's it's nice that a lot of these things are more um, naming and uh, 
stuff like that, as opposed to us getting something horribly wrong in terms of the biological life of these species. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, that is a good point. I agree. So I I posted on Facebook and Twitter if anyone would like a shout out during this episode. <laughs> and we actually had a few people say they did. So here they are. Thank you very much, Ian Rushton. It's good to know you listen. And you tagged Laura Richards, who presumably also listens. So hey, Ian. Hey, Laura. Uh, we he didn't he didn't comment but he liked it alexandra alexandre simeone so cheers mate hello to you and then also we had kurt barnes hey kurt how you doing mate long time no speak and will farron who i happened to see last week cheers mate here's your shout out (laughs) good luck with the phd there you go yeah cool um anything else to add I do not think so. I do not have any additional traffic reports <laughs> on the status of exported geckos to talk about. <laughs> so I think <laughs> I will I will leave you without that. Ah, yeah, you haven't got any more traffic reports. No, but I can, if we want to make that a feature, I'm sure I can dig some up. <laughs> nah, it's all good. You're, as fun as it was, nah, it was good. And actually, it it interestingly that traffic report will kind of. Um, be touched on in our upcoming first ever interview episode which will be released next week um, next week from when this is being listened to uh, so yeah it's a nice little continuous thread which is quite cool yes yes so um, yeah I think that just about wraps it up doesn't it for episode 11 yeah I think so I think we've we've had some fun talking about vipers I'm, yeah I am satisfied yeah me too I feel like I've got a I've um, I've fed the viper bug. Fed the viper bug. <laughs> yep. Yep. You gonna try that again? I feel like I've sated my viper appetite at least for the time being. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So thanks for listening. And if you need to get in touch with us, or if you've got questions, if you've got corrections. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, facebook.com slash herbhighlights. You can get in touch with us via email, herbhighlights at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch with us via Twitter at herbhighlights. Mm. And a big, big, yeah, big thanks to those who have already. It is much appreciated getting these corrections through. Yeah, and, <laughs> and we get some kind words as well, which is really nice to hear. So thank you. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, until next time. Thanks for listening. Just worship the snakes. Wow.